Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani state of mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This was almost the perfect murder. Introducing a new podcast from Court TV. They were killed by their own children. Murder and the Menendez brothers. I just started firing. What was in front of you? My parents. Oh, that is on tape. <laughs> Murder and the Menendez brothers, a Court TV mystery. Available now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Several months back, in our episode about Judy Garland, we talked about the 1954 version of A Star is Born, directed by George Cukor. A Star is Born was a labor of love for Judy Garland, and her then-husband, Sid Luft, who was a schemer who wanted to be a Hollywood producer. It was designed as a comeback vehicle for Judy through which she could prove, despite her well-publicized personal problems, that she still had it, and through which Luft could make a name for himself as a Hollywood player. It stands today as Judy's finest film, and probably the darkest and most serious film about Hollywood that Hollywood has ever made. But it wasn't original. It was, in fact, a remake of a remake, which would itself later be remade. The 1954 A Star is Born is the third iteration of a long-held Hollywood myth about the impossibility of the coexistence of fame and romantic happiness, which was first shaped into a tragedy by early Hollywood gossip columnist Adela Rogers St. John, the author of the screenplay of the 1932 film What Price Hollywood? That movie was remade in 1937, as A Star is Born, starring Frederick March and Janet Gaynor, with a script by Dorothy Parker. The Garland version was a remake of that film, with the addition of music and widescreen color cinematography designed to lure fickle audiences who had largely abandoned movie houses in the 1950s for TV. And 22 years later, in the midst of a new Hollywood boom which was ostensibly about subverting Hollywood's old myths came another version. The 1976 version of A Star is Born was directed by Frank Pearson from a script by Joan Didion and her husband, John Gregory Dunn. It was a labor of love for Barbara Streisand and her then-boyfriend, 
John Peters, a middle school dropout turned hairdresser who would later become one of Hollywood's most successful producers. Just as the 1954 version had been designed as the comeback for Judy Garland, the 1976 version was designed as an image makeover vehicle for Streisand, through which she could prove that she was hip to a culture that had changed while she was making mostly old-fashioned musical movies. It was also designed as a vehicle through which Peters, like Luft before him, could make a name for himself as a Hollywood player. In 1976, A Star is Born was both a massive success and a disaster. It has a reputation today as one of Streisand's worst films and one of the more laughable and tone-deaf attempts to capture the zeitgeist that Hollywood ever made. But the production came in on time and on budget, and even after an editing drama through which the director's cut of the film was scrapped, albeit under extremely different circumstances than the one through which the original director's cut of the 1954 version went missing, the 1976 A Star is Born made a lot of money. It also set up both Streisand and Peters to fulfill their wildest Hollywood dreams, while cementing both of their reputations as monsters. Join us, won't you, as we tell the sometimes amazing, often cringeworthy, true story of the birth of Barbara Streisand's A Star is Born. Love soft as an easy chair. From the beginning of her career as a cabaret act in early 1960s Manhattan, Barbara Streisand thought of herself as an actress, not a singer. She only accepted that she could even be the latter when she learned that she could act through singing, playing the lyrics as though there were a three-act play in every song. In this, she was greatly inspired by Judy Garland, whose fame Streisand only hoped that she could someday match. The comparison didn't work in Barbara's favor at first, her record company thought that, like Garland in the mid-60s, Streisand would surely inspire a big gay following, but her mainstream potential might be limited. In 1963, five years after Garland had quieted some naysayers with a landmark live performance at the Coconut Grove in L.A., the living legend went to see Barbara perform at the same venue. As the first song ended, Garland nudged her date and whispered, I'm never going to open my mouth again. By that point, Streisand had already made her sensational debut on Broadway in I Can Get It For You Wholesale. For that show's playbill, she fabricated a biography for herself, beginning with the falsehood that soon-to-be archetypical Brooklynite Barbara had actually been, quote, born in Madagascar and raised in Rangoon. Her co-stars rolled their eyes, perhaps unaware that Barbara was taking a page from an actor who had done the exact same sort of thing a decade and a half earlier, that actor being Marlon Brando. Disapproval was nothing new for her. Always she had been the weird girl. Always she had been told that she was ugly. Barbara was obsessed with the idea of doing it her way from the very beginning, in rehearsals for I Can Get It For You Wholesale, she tried to convince the director and the choreographer of the show that she should do her big number sitting in a rolling chair, rolling back and forth across the stage. Despite her badgering, they refused to let her even try it that way until the final preview, where the chair shtick was such a hit 
that the producers put a shot of Babs in her chair on the poster. Around this time, Barbara moved into a rat-infested, one-room apartment with none other than Elliot Gould. Gould was one of her co-stars and I Can Get It For You Wholesale. At that point, both Streisand and Gould were two Jewish nobodies who thought of themselves as ugly ducklings. Gould would later say that she only married him because he was the first person that she liked who liked her back. Barbara was initially enthusiastic enough about the coupling that she got in the habit of telling reporters they were married long before they actually went to Nevada to do the deed. But the thrill faded fast, particularly as Barbara's star began to skyrocket while Elliot faced one professional disappointment after another. Their marriage resulted in a son, Jason, but couldn't survive Elliot's gambling addiction and Barbara's affairs. Never mind the public perception that Gould, whose career didn't really take off until after he and Barbara were separated, was Mr. Streisand. Their last public appearance as a couple was at the Oscars in 1969. Barbara won Best Actress that night in a tie with Katharine Hepburn, and she made a sensation with her choice of ensemble, a pantsuit which proved on camera to be completely see-through. Elliot sat next to her, sullen, stoned, and ignored. Two years later, after Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice and MASH, when Gould was the hottest star in Hollywood, Barbara flew to Sweden, where Gould was filming The Touch with Ingmar Bergman to try to win her estranged husband back. But it was too late. He had already moved on. Cut to 1973. Gould's attitude towards Barbara had been the definition of passive-aggressive. He'd sit by idly while she had affairs with co-stars like Omar Sharif and then bitch about his wife in the press. When John Peters walked into Barbara's home in 1973 to interview for the job of hairdresser on her next movie, For Pete's Sake, he made it clear that he was no passivity and all aggression. First, he berated Barbara for keeping him waiting a few minutes. Then, he looked her up and down and said, You've got a great ass. She later said, He made me feel like a real woman. Peters, according to Peters, was half Cherokee, half Italian. He claimed he had landed in Juvenile Hall before he learned to read or write, and in fact, his notorious illiteracy would become the butt of jokes throughout his time in Hollywood. As a teenage runaway, he found work at a Manhattan hair salon, catering mostly to sex workers. He worked his way up from sweeping floors to grooming pubic hair. He proudly referred to himself as a former muff dyer. Peters would say that his life started to change when he started doing hair for Sonia Henney, the ice skater turned film actress, who started inviting Peters to her Hollywood parties and eventually gave him $100,000 with which to start a Beverly Hills salon. Peters claimed he kept his friendship with Sonia a secret from his then-wife, actress Leslie Ann Warren, who had disappointed John by not becoming more of a superstar. Peters alleges that at one point during their marriage, he caught his wife in bed with Warren Beatty, which is of note only because Peters would later claim to be the inspiration for Beatty's character in Hal Ashby's Shampoo. Around the time he met Barbara, Peters separated from Warren and moved into a house in Sherman Oaks with a hot tub, but no furniture. John Peters wasn't smart, and he certainly wasn't classy, but he had instincts, the instincts of a pussy-mad teenage boy, 
In other words, the instincts that would drive the entertainment business from the late 1970s onward. And generally, when he wanted to get something done, it got done. In 1973, what he wanted to get done seemed like the impossible. He was determined to make Barbara Streisand cool. Peters would later claim that his nice ass line wasn't purely a pickup. It was career advice. Peters told Streisand, The public should see this side of you, the sexy side, your legs, your ass, your breasts. His savvy about what the public wanted aside, he did pursue Barbara relentlessly. She told him to give up. You're not my type, she said. I like distinguished men. You know, guys who smoke pipes. The next time she saw Peters, he was wearing a velvet smoking jacket and holding a pipe. Once they finally hooked up, Peters didn't mince words when it came to his thoughts about Barbara's career. He told her, for Pete's sake, would flop. And it did. He subsequently reshaped her image, taking her shopping for a new wardrobe full of tight jeans and stacked platforms. Under his tutelage, she became very blonde and very tan, and he banned her from wearing bras. But he couldn't stop her from making Funny Lady, the sequel to Funny Girl, the film that had won her the Oscar. Funny Lady baffled Peters. For years, Barbara had been fighting a perception that she was a, quote, veteran. In fact, an interview with Grover Lewis way back in 1971 was full of both Barbara and her collaborators insisting that she was, quote, only 28. Now here she was, three years later, making a movie in which she was positioned in both text and meta-text as yesterday's news, resting on dusty old accomplishments. Big hits like Funny Girl and The Way We Were had made her Hollywood's most bankable female star, but her forte seemed to be period pieces and cabaret. She's a young, hot, sexy woman, a little ball of fire. Peters insisted. None of that had been conveyed on film. She should be playing things that are hot and young and contemporary. Peters's idea of how to convey Barbara's youth and hipness was to pillage one of Hollywood's oldest stories. Barbara, he thought, should do a rock and roll remake of A Star is Born. As it turned out, John Gregory Dunn and his wife and collaborator, Joan Didion, had sold that very idea, sans Streisand, to Warner Brothers in 1973. Warner Brothers owned the previous version of the film, and they also had a music library. So in Didion's words, they got the idea. Didion and Dunn spent that summer on the road following around various rock bands as research. They wrote their version of the story with James Taylor and Carly Simon in mind, but those married stars passed, as did Streisand initially. She didn't want to do a remake, she said, and she was bored by rock and roll. Then, Cher was all set to do it, until Peters had his bright idea. He urged Streisand to reconsider, and this time, she got it. She was struck by the similarities in the A Star is Born story to her own life. Not with Gould, who she had emasculated with her rise to fame, but with Peters. After all, the male character in the script drove a red Ferrari, just like John. He was a Gemini. Just like John. It was kind of a mystical thing, Streisand marveled. It was destined to be. 
In fact, Peters and Streisand became obsessed with the idea that A Star is Born was the perfect vehicle through which to elevate their own love story to the level of myth. They brought Didion and Dunn out to Barbara's Malibu ranch to do rewrites. Barbara straight up asked Didion and Dunn for more schmaltz, while at the same time insisting that the film's gender politics needed an update. In the film versions made in the 1930s and 50s, rising actress Esther had watched helplessly as her husband declined. Barbara would not allow her Esther, a nightclub singer in a relationship with a self-destructive rocker, to be so passive. This is the 70s, she said. She shouldn't stand around and watch him disintegrate. I wanted to say, fight for me, goddammit. Protect yourself, or I'll kill you. Fighting was one way to reflect Barbara's relationship with John Peters. There were rumors that the relationship was violent. They were notorious for knockdown, drag-out arguments in public. He was known to punch his fist through walls. One day, they got in a fight while Peters was driving, and with one hand on the wheel, he reached over and ripped off Barbara's blouse. She kicked her leg up and stuck her stiletto heel into his neck in retaliation. It's a miracle he was able to keep control of the wheel. Didion and Dunn didn't last long at the Streisand Ranch. They were long gone and off the project by the time that Barbara managed to attach her boyfriend as its director. Directing is a thing I've done my whole life, Peters insisted. It's getting people to do what I want them to do. But when this was announced, long before the movie actually went into production, there was a serious backlash. The remake began to be known as Hollywood's biggest joke. And by way of damage control, Barbara and John agreed that he couldn't direct the movie. In fact, Barbara wanted to direct it herself. But she was afraid of what taking a job away from her volatile boyfriend would do to their relationship. The couple formed a united front when it came to searching for an actor with musical chops to play Barbara's co-lead. They were in agreement about avoiding the obvious choice, Chris Christopherson, who had been attached to the film since before Barbara signed on. Barbara didn't want him because he would demand to share above the title billing with her. And John didn't want him because he was a former flame of Barbara's. At some point, Peters himself was considered for the role, although Barbara later insisted that it had just been a joke. The couple flew to Las Vegas to meet with Elvis in 1975, but found him to be in no shape to carry a film. Marlon Brando came out to the house, and Barbara loved him so much that she was willing to kill the musical aspect of the film in order to accommodate him. But Warner Brothers wasn't so willing. When Frank Pearson, best known as the screenwriter of Cool Hand Luke, Cat Baloo, and Dog Day Afternoon, finally signed on as director, a higher-up at the studio straight-up told him that it didn't matter if the finished film was any good. The bottom line is to get Streisand to the studio. Shooter singing six numbers, and we'll make $60 million. We'd like it to be good, and that's what we hope you'll do. But if we have no choice... Ultimately, nobody had much of a choice about anything other than Barbara. A Star is Born was produced through First Artists, a production company founded by agent Freddie Fields as a 1970s answer to United Artists, through which Paul Newman, Sidney Poitier, and Streisand all had contracts to executive produce and star in three films apiece. 
The deal was that each star would be given $6 million on each film, and they could do essentially whatever they wanted. But if they went over the $6 million, they'd have to pay out of their own pockets. No matter what, each star was guaranteed final cut. Once he got the job, Pearson started making trips to Malibu. The Streisand Ranch was in a constant state of improvement, with new guest suites, tennis courts, and a swimming pool all popping up as Pearson was working on the script. Barbara and John were in the process of doing this very specific Hollywood thing of building a compound far from prying eyes, with everything they might ever need right on the premises so that they would never have to leave. But in an echo of John's house in Sherman Oaks, where the hot tub was the only piece of furniture, at the Malibu Ranch, there was nowhere to sit. John and Barbara did all of their meetings lying on the floor. This casual environment did not mellow out Barbara. As executive producer, she had two major executive demands. She wanted to make sure that she was always backlit so that her Afro-esque perm would glow like a halo. And she insisted that all of the musical numbers be recorded live for spontaneity, and also because she was a terrible lip syncer. The film's other producer, John Peters, was still cutting hair two mornings a week while the film was in pre-production. Barbara and John finally broke down and cast Chris Christopherson, but John couldn't stop shaping the character in his own image. He told Pearson he didn't want the character to commit suicide, as the husband had done in every previous version of the film, because that would be weak, and John Peters wasn't weak. Peters insisted that if the guy had to die, he wanted it to look like it could have been an accident. Finally, when it came time to shoot a sexy bathtub scene, Peters took Chris aside and begged him, man to man, to wear a modesty garment. Chris, please, this is my lady. We're engaged. I love her. I don't want your dick floating around in the tub with her leg right there. When you watch that scene, it's kind of hard to understand why Peters was so concerned. A big problem of Streisand's A Star is Born is the lack of convincing carnal energy between Christofferson and Streisand. Maybe this is because Streisand is the exact opposite of what you might call a generous performer. But maybe it's also due to the unique stamp Streisand put on the story's gender dynamics, which are actually fascinating. In this scene in which these new lovers are naked in the bath together, Streisand had the bright idea that her character should playfully put makeup on the man, a role reversal that Chris's character pays back by referring to her throughout the film as Mr. And though she wears soft, flowy kimonos at home and in other scenes, Streisand's Esther has her first big concert triumph dressed in a man's three-piece suit, which she leaves on in the next scene in which she asks Christofferson's John to marry her. This stuff fits in perfectly with the essence of Barbara Streisand's filmography, particularly the films she'd later direct, like Yentl and The Mirror Has Two Faces, in which her characters have trouble performing what's expected of them in terms of conventional femininity, and or they find that feminine roles don't accommodate all they want from life. This was absolutely true to Streisand's real-life experience. She was never going to be a typical wife or a typical actress— she always wanted more, and always elbowed her way through barriers to get it. Regardless of what you think about Streisand's performance in this film or other films, or her overall star persona, you sort of have to admire the resoluteness of her drive, especially since it was so unusual for a woman in Hollywood at that time. 
What's not so admirable is the lack of self-awareness Peters and Streisand exhibited throughout the A Star is Born era. They seemed to confuse the fictional space of the movie with real life. They were constantly trying to wedge more of their off-screen lives onto the screen. Peters' real-life opening to Barbara went into the movie. You got a beautiful mouth. Even though I talk too much? You have a great ass. And so did the couple's volatility. Over John and Esther's first meal, she tells him that the reason why her first marriage didn't work out is because, quote, he didn't want to fight. Streisand carted in her own clothes, her own furniture, cast her own backup singers and real manager in small roles. Barbara and John had this idea that because they were one of the celebrity couples of the moment, their public was anxious to see what their lives were really like. Barbara interpreted the public's desire to want to know more about her as a desire to want to know things like what kind of furniture she had in her house. And maybe she was right. Although that still leaves it an open question as to whether or not A Star is Born was the best vehicle for that kind of revelation, if it even was a revelation. There's one anecdote from the set of the movie that, I think, really confirms that Barbara's interest in so-called realism was trumped by her self-obsession. Acting was not an on-set process for Barbara. Unless she flubbed a line, she usually thought that her best take was her first take, and she didn't want to do more takes. She resented having to repeat herself for technical purposes, like for coverage, and she really resented having to do multiple takes for the purpose of other actors. And then one day, the tables turned. Shooting one scene, Barbara couldn't cry on cue, and Chris apologized to her. It was his fault, he said. As the other actor in the scene, he wasn't giving her what she needed to spark an emotional reaction. This made Barbara livid. She pulled Pearson aside and said, Did you hear what he said? He thinks that what he does controls what I do? The ego! To Barbara, acting wasn't a collaborative process. For all of the realism that she and Peters thought that they were injecting into the production by having Christofferson drive John's actual Ferrari, Streisand wasn't able to do something as basically actorly as allow her performance to be affected by what was happening in the room, in the moment. She simply didn't believe in allowing anything that she couldn't control. Maybe this comes from being a musical performer. On stage, she might have a band and backup singers, but it's still on her to carry the show, to get it right on the first try without the possibility of a do-over or a bailout. But movies are different. And at least at this point in her career, she caused a lot of problems, particularly in terms of how she was perceived by her peers, because she couldn't and wouldn't adapt. Barbara had her hand in so many aspects of the production that the roles soon became confused. When Oscar night came, Pearson was able to duck out of a location night shoot just long enough to watch himself win an Oscar for Dog Day Afternoon. And then it was back to work, back to battling with Barbara. Pearson later said that he had never been so tired, at least not since World War II, his exhaustion was not appreciated by his star-slash-executive producer. At one point, Streisand conspiratorially suggested to Polly Platt that she could fire Pearson, and the two women could team up and take the movie over, directing together. 
Polly Platt said, That's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. The authorship of A Star is Born became a meme after a press op gone horribly wrong. For a climactic concert scene, Peters had somehow arranged a real rock concert in a football stadium in Arizona. Tens of thousands of tickets were sold, and Santana and Peter Frampton were hired to perform after the production got its footage of Christofferson in a supposedly fictional drunken and drugged days riding a motorcycle off the stage and into the massive crowd. In addition to the real concertgoers, 100 journalists had been invited to witness the majesty of this location shoot. Unfortunately, nobody seemed to remember the presence of those journalists when the mics were left on to broadcast a backstage fight between Streisand, Pearson, Peters, and Christofferson. You're not doing what I tell you to, fumed Barbara at Chris, who fired back, Shit, I got the director telling me one thing and you telling me another. Who's the director? Get your shit together. He added the suggestion that she go fuck herself, which compelled Peters to charge at Christofferson with his fists raised. You owe my lady an apology. We didn't have a movie to make, I'd beat the shit out of you. At this point, Christofferson was drinking a quart of tequila and two six-packs of beer a day, every day, just to maintain. He spent a lot of time in his trailer, while John and Barbara wasted time shouting at each other. One afternoon after a particularly bad argument, Pearson found Barbara cowering behind a bush. She whisper-begged him to drive her home. In the car, she admitted to Pearson that she was terrified to ever be alone, even or especially in her big ranch house. She told him that on the back or underside of each antique, each Picasso or Klimt, she had written how much she had paid for it, as if to confirm it was all really real. We know about this vulnerable moment between the director and his actress because Frank Pearson wrote about it, in an expose about the production of A Star is Born and his battles with Peters and Streisand that was published in New York and New West magazines. Already press-shy, Barbara took Pearson's editorial as a major betrayal. Here she is speaking indirectly about it on the director's commentary of The Star is Born DVD. The relationship between a director and an actor is like a doctor or a lawyer. It's a privileged, confidential relationship. You never, ever disclose information that you hear from your actors. Because me as a director, I like to find out about my actors, find their vulnerable points, ask them all about their history, their lives, so I can play them like an instrument. If I say one word that I know will touch off a certain emotion, that's how I get the performance out of the actor. But you think I have the right to take it outside of that kind of sacred space, which is the set? that you are working on, it is privileged information that you do not share. Pearson probably breached that unofficial confidentiality agreement because he had had the movie, which was his first big directorial effort, taken away from him. Pearson was given six weeks to do a cut of the film. When he finished, Barbara, who was always planning to exercise her right to final cut, tried to keep the studio from even seeing it, but she couldn't. So Warners watched Pearson's cut, 
and they told him that they thought they had a surefire hit on their hands. But Barbara was never going to be content to take their word for it. So she moved the editing staff into her Malibu ranch and spent 12 hours a day, seven days a week, refashioning the film, beginning in September 1976 and working almost all the way up to the Christmas week release. According to Pearson, most of this time was spent cutting down Christofferson's part, sharing the emotional moments that gave weight to his performance and to his character side of the story, and putting in more close-ups of herself, particularly of her backlit face and what Peters called her world-class ass. Streisand would later admit that she regretted some of her cuts, but to try to be fair, she thought the stakes were high too high to entrust the fate of the film to anyone else. She had told Pearson, if this film goes down the drain, it's all over for John and me. We'll never work again. She probably wouldn't have worked again had her agent not stopped her from trying to give herself editing and wardrobe credits in addition to her titles as lead actress and executive producer, and no one apparently stopped her from attaching instructional notes to the projectionist on every can of film, which concluded with the benediction, Thank you in advance, and you should please take good care of my kid. The critics did not handle A Star is Born with kid gloves. A star is still born! declared Rex Reed. Frank Rich and Pauline Kael, two of Barbara's biggest boosters, both trashed the film, declaring their previously blind allegiance to the star to be over. But it was a huge hit. Its box office gross far exceeded any of the previous versions of the film and more than paid back Streisand's personal investment. The soundtrack went straight to number one. The song Streisand had had a hand in co-writing, Evergreen, won the Oscar for the best song. Barbara personally made $15 million from her share of the box office take alone. And she wasn't the only winner. Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn, who had insisted on a share of the film's gross as part of their exit agreement, made more money on A Star is Born than anything either of them was ever involved with. For all of its success, A Star is Born is still perceived as a landmark of false Hollywood hubris. Peters and Streisand would probably suggest that that has less to do with the film itself than with the way it was covered in the media. Beyond the bad reviews and the Pearson expose, there was Peters and Streisand's truly weird appearance on the first ever Barbara Walters TV special, which 20 years later, Walters would describe as both a first and a last. In December of 1976, the reclusive Barbara Streisand opened her home and her life to me for our first special. One, two, three, four, one. Watch closely now. was, and still is, one of our greatest stars, but I paid a high price. I so wanted Barbara Streisand as a guest on my first special that I did something I've never done before or since. I let her see the tape the same night we did the interview. As everyone knows, Barbara is a perfectionist. She wanted to change almost every line up until the program aired. I never gave anyone else control again. You can watch the whole special on YouTube. I would have included more here, but the audio from the VHS transfer gets progressively worse as it goes along. Suffice it to say, watching it today, it's somewhat surprising to hear that Streisand exercised what was essentially final cut level control. 
because there's plenty of stuff left in it where she and Peters come off as, at best, lacking in self-awareness, and at worst, pretty ridiculous. It makes you realize that the fatal flaw of Barbara Streisand, and maybe also a powerful part of her cult, is that somehow one of the world's greatest control freaks isn't able to recognize when she's embarrassing herself. Or maybe, and this is the part that I think is probably most attractive to a certain segment of her fan base, she just doesn't give a shit. A Star is Born touched off what Barbara Streisand would later categorize as a transitional period. A time when she knew that she wanted to direct, but she lacked the confidence to just do it. And so instead, she produced and hired directors who she could steamroll over. She made one more movie under her first artist's deal, the main event. Then came All Night Long, a movie Streisand hated so much that she ultimately fired agent Sue Mengers for suggesting that she do it. Finally, in 1983, Streisand made her official directorial debut with Yentl. Peters produced, and their romantic relationship fell apart during the making of the movie, but they remained, at least according to him, lifelong friends. After Streisand, John Peters would team up with producer Peter Guber and eventually become the co-head of Columbia Pictures, possibly making him the first illiterate studio head, although no one seems to know for sure. He would win a Best Picture Oscar for Rain Man and reinvigorate the blockbuster business with Batman. And then came Bonfire of the Vanities. When Peters was fired from Columbia Pictures, he refashioned himself as an independent producer. He made Wild Wild West and Ali, both starring Peters' quote-unquote protege, Will Smith. And then he acquired the rights to the Superman franchise, producing the last two Superman movies. Those four films are the only films he's made in the past 15 years. A few years ago, Peters tried to write a memoir, telling his ghostwriter, I've never really read a book, but have I got stories. But the book never happened. His deal with his ghostwriter and their publisher fell apart sometime after Nikki Fink published their proposal on Deadline Hollywood, with the headline... It should be called Dickhead. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. You Must Remember This is written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. Today, our special guest was Noah Segan, who played John Peters. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. And please follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night.